Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. I'm pretty excited to share this week's conversation with Dr. Ian Bowie, who I invited on the show a few days ago to talk about the relationship between proper running form, strength training, and injury prevention. Dr. Bowie is a physical therapist, certified strength coach, and a USATF certified running coach who received her doctor of physical therapy from Columbia University, where she spent a ton of time working in their prestigious run lab clinic, performing gait evaluations on runners of all levels. I now has her own practice, Run Resiliently, which is essentially a one-stop shop for coaching, strength and conditioning, as well as personalized physical therapy. I caught up with Ayn at a time of the year when I think a lot of folks are transitioning into their off-seasons and maybe running a bit less, which in my opinion is the perfect time to work on mending any nagging issues or fixing any strength imbalances we might have picked up over the course of the year. It can be hard to know exactly where to start if you don't have a ton of experience with strength training though, so Ayn and I discuss some guiding principles for those looking to get started, as well as some helpful running form cues to remember, recovery techniques, and a whole lot more. But before I bring Ayn on, I do want to take a quick second and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. We also recently rolled out our Blister Plus Spot Insurance membership option, which provides you with injury coverage for all of your favorite outdoor activities, in addition to all of the perks of a standard Blister membership. For more info on that, check out the link in the show notes. Also, if you've been enjoying the conversations I've been having on this show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the podcast. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Ayn. Dr. Ayn, welcome to the show again. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. So to give some context, we recorded probably, I don't know, 25 to 30 minutes and then the internet failed us and we couldn't problem solve. So we're doing it again. It's, it's worth it though. We had some really good content out there. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're dialed. We've got a natural repertoire now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think um, we'll be able to even talk into more detail about some of those running gate topics you asked about. Yeah. So I guess to rewind a little bit, um, I wanted to have you on because it's December and I think a lot of runners are moving into um, a quote unquote off season in their training where they might not be running as much and, and they may be taking some downtime. And I think that like this is commonly a period where people are like, I'm going to be a better runner next year. I'm going to work on my weaknesses, but they don't necessarily know where to begin with that. I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm this is this the winter where I'm going to start lifting weights. And I think as an expert in physical therapy, you've, you have a lot of experience um, helping folks that don't have a lot of experience lifting weights and uh, implementing strength training into their routine, figure that process out. So I thought we could kind of talk a little bit about some good places to start with that. Uh, but before we do, I want to get a better sense of your background and how you got into running. 
Um, I know you just ran a PR at CIM uh, a couple weeks ago, and I'm curious how you got there. Yeah, so um, my running started at an early age, but I actually didn't specialize in running. Um, I tried a variety of different sports. So I played basketball, I played tennis, and I was fortunate that my parents really didn't force me into running in particular. So I had time to try other different sports. Um, and to kind of backtrack, like my family history really kind of shaped how I became the runner that I am today. Um, I grew up in a Vietnamese immigrant family. Um, I'm one of three daughters and we were all born in Vietnam. So we immigrated here when we were young. And, you know, as part of my parents' American dream was to kind of bring us over here, make sure that, you know, we got a good education and, you know, eventually found stable jobs. And so for us, like, you know, finding sports at a young age was an extracurricular and it was something that, you know, you needed to build a good college application. So they just wanted to make sure that we had something in that you know, area to check the box off of. And so I don't think they ever intended that I was going to continue running or pursuing running um, in the serious way that I have. Um, but in some ways, the beauty of it is I had the opportunity to try different things. And so um, one of the sports that I always tried was track and field in middle school. And the beauty of track and field was, you know, there were no cuts in the sport. So it gave people the opportunity to develop their aerobic skills and kind of find the events that was, you know, right for them. And for me, that um, started out in the sprints, but quickly moved on to long distance. Do you think there's a value in playing a bunch of different sports as a kid? I think like I'm a big basketball fan and one of the narratives now is uh, concern around basketball players that grew up only playing like AAU and only playing basketball. Um, I think a lot of like the scouts now look for uh, for individuals that, you know, played a bunch of different sports. Um, why is that, do you think? The injury risk is higher when you specialize in one particular sport at a young age. I would say it's even higher for, um, you know, people who play endurance sports. So, for example, swimming, running, because you develop your muscles and your skeletal system in, in one particular motion. Um, the issue with basketball and baseball and those contact sports um, is burnout. So not only do they develop, you know, physical injuries early on, but they also develop a lot of burnout later in age. Gotcha. So returning to your own running career, uh, you picked up track and field and you moved up in distance. Uh, did that carry you through high school? It did. Um, in high school, I was originally supposed to play tennis. Um, both of my siblings were very successful in tennis. And so I did play one season uh, my freshman year. And actually, when I was at um, tennis conditioning practice one day, the cross-country coach came over and said, you look more like a distance runner than you do a tennis player. So um, he kind of, I don't know if he was insulting me at the time, um, but thank you, Jerry Metcalf, because getting me onto the cross-country and track team was the best decision I ever made. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I don't think I asked you that. I grew up in San Leandro, uh, well, San Lorenzo to be specific, um, and that's on the East Bay. Gotcha. Cool. I know that you also ran collegiately uh, down in San Diego. How did you end up there? You know, Matt, I ask myself that question a lot these days. I don't know. <laughs> I was I was super injured in high school, like probably the only high school athlete that went on to run in college that never actually ran the California State meet. Um, and so, you know, based off of 
the three seasons that I ran in college, I was able to walk on at UC San Diego, um, which was an awesome opportunity. But at the same time, it was still a very disappointing collegiate career because I was never able to run or compete in the capacity that I thought I was capable of. Because again, I just I was so injured all the time. So then what led you to to want to walk on? Because it's not like you're being recruited or anything like that. It's like that's very much a, a conscious decision on your part. Yeah, I think there's always that question, you know, deep in the back of your mind of what else can you get out of yourself? Like there, there's those what if questions that I'm sure, you know, you yourself as an athlete ask yourself. It's like that curiosity of what if I continue to keep pursuing this this thing? Like what what can I achieve from it? Gotcha. And you spoke about being kind of chronically injured. Um, one, what were some of those injuries you dealt with as a young athlete? And two, uh, looking back, what do you think you were doing wrong in your training? Yeah, so, um, you know, early on in high school, fortunately, um, a lot of the injuries that I've dealt with are more the common injuries, nothing that required surgery. But again, it's very preventable. Like, you know, sometimes people ask the question, like, if you were to go back in time and run with anybody, like, who would it be? And sometimes I think, well, it would, it would be cool to run with like the 16 year old version of myself <laughs> and like talk some sense into this person. Um, but, you know, like high school shin splints, um, shin splints were the worst. Um, I've had IT band syndrome. Um, when I got to college, plantar fasciitis for a really long time. Um bone stress injuries in my femur. Uh, fortunately, just had one of those that was not a repetitive problem. Um, and Achilles tendonitis. Do you think that like your relationship to running at that time in your life was to blame for stuff like that? Um, yes and no. Uh, I think I think there were there were training errors for sure. Um, and I think at the time, it felt like I constantly had to prove myself. Uh, because, you know, I came from a school where, you know, maybe I was the fastest person there, but now I got to college and now I'm like the slowest person walk on, on like in the program. And so there's a sense that, you know, every day you kind of had to keep proving like you belongs there. But like, you know, thinking back, it's like, okay, you, you made the team, like you definitely belongs there. It's just trusting your gut a little bit and listening to your body. And I think, um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I made was just running too hard on easy days and kind of ignoring the early symptoms or early signs of injury. Yeah. I've seen so many videos of like Kipchoge running like a nine, nine minute mile. And like, that's what they do for like most of their training runs. But here I am like running a seven minute mile, my recovery day where like my marathon pace is like a minute off of that. It's just nonsensical. Yeah. And I think the culture there is different where it's so well accepted to, to do your easy runs that slow versus here, the culture is just everybody's running fast all the time. Right. Like if you're not suffering, then you're not working out and you're not getting better. Exactly. But there's nothing wrong with keeping your heart rate in the 130s. Yeah. And I think that's like something that's I've been fascinated by within the last few years is um, how training concepts like Maffetone method where you keep your heart rate like under a certain like a certain beats per minute is becoming more and more popular, which is cool to see. And like zone two training is is uh, I feel like there's so many science podcasts about the value of zone two training now. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think in general, there's so much more information and resources we have out there to know about like training and recovery that actually prolongs the career of an athlete. Totally. 
So getting back um, to your journey, uh, when did you kind of decide that PT, physical therapy, was going to be um, a potential career path for you? Did that kind of correspond with um, your history of injury in college? Yeah, so not that wasn't my initial route. Um, when I graduated from UC San Diego, um, I immediately went into a PhD program in exercise physiology at University of Florida. So I moved all the way to Gainesville. Um, I taught human physiology out there. Um, and I quickly realized that, you know, academia and research were was just not the the career that I saw for myself. But I, I really love to teach. Um, and, you know, I realized that from teaching human physiology to the undergrads. Um, and I wanted to continue that. And I knew that I was passionate about running. And I knew that I love to talk to people about their running injuries. So it just seems like a good fit for me to pursue physical therapy in that path. And I know that you attended uh, Columbia for that. What was the reason behind um, ending up in, in New York City? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's interesting. They say, you know, all roads lead back to New York City. So in some ways, I felt like I, I you know, I was, I was there for a reason in some ways. Um, but one of the things that attracted me to Columbia University was really that they had um, the Columbia Run Lab Clinic. And it was, um, I was there for two, well, the, I was in the DPT program for three years, but Run Lab was two years of a program. Um, and so through that experience, um, I really got to work with a lot of high level athletes um, and learning how to do a running gait assessment on them and how to prescribe um, running cues and home exercise programs individualized to that person. What was that curriculum like? Because it seems super fascinating to me. Uh, the physical therapy program? Yeah. Well, yeah, at Columbia. Yeah. I just imagine just like a bunch of like treadmills in a lab and uh, yeah, crazy plates and, and scales and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's not to that degree. Um, but basically, it was within New York Presbyterian Hospital. So we rented out um, a floor there. And so if you can imagine like um, a doctor's office, there's different rooms. And so each room was designated to a different running analysis station. So one of them would be the gait assessment station uh, where we did all the video recording. Um, and then there would be a strength and flexibility station. There would be a foot and ankle station and a functional movement screening station. But the really cool thing about Columbia Run Lab that made that experience different than anywhere else was that it was a learning experience for the runner and all the other runners that attended that evening. Because basically, we would have four, um, four runners an evening. And after collecting all of the data from each individual runner, we would all gather into the same conference room. And so, um, you know, we would put Johnny's video up on the screen. We would talk about all of Johnny's impairments, how we would fix it. And this is in front of the other runners that evening. So, you know, you can you'll see your own video, but you can learn from others videos as well. Were you ever a subject of that? Did you ever kind of climb on the treadmill and, and have people kind of point out your flaws? What was that like? It, you know what? I think it was a really good experience because you being the subject, you had to experience like, okay, how would I want somebody to communicate those findings to me? Right? Like, especially if, you know, I was a really high level athlete, and I was really, really fast, like, what kind of verbiage would I use to this individual? Um, and like, and that was, that's one of the things that, you know, I still try to incorporate today is like, 
know your audience and like communicate to your audience the way that they um, are most receptive to. Yeah, I imagine the experience is like similar to like a creative writing workshop where you're you read what you've written and people just like tear into you but i don't think it's that uh (laughs) that violent but the thing is like i think everyone is a little bit self-conscious about seeing themselves run for the first time because in your head you're probably thinking you look like you know ellie kipchoge or something you know more um perfect but when you really see it you're just like oh okay like i'm kind of worried about what they're going to point out Totally. Where did they come up with like a standard for like proper running form? Yeah, so proper running form has been studied and researched for decades. Um, So there are a set of normative values for a lot of things, um, such as, you know, pelvic drop, how much you should be crossing over. But there are certain things that you um, there are no normative uh, measures for, and that's overstriding. Gotcha. Um, So moving into maybe a few like key points when thinking about form, what are some areas that beginner runners can focus if they want to improve the way they run? I would say the the thing that would give you the most bang for your buck in terms of efficiency and reducing the risk of common running injuries is um, minimizing the amount that you overstride. So there's a lot of talk out there about foot strike. Like, should you be a forefoot striker? Should you be a midfoot striker or a heel striker? And in reality, it doesn't really matter as long as you land with your foot close underneath your center of mass. Gotcha. And what about like, I hear a lot about like learning how to lean forward. How do you kind of develop an intuitive sense of like how to do that? And like, what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah. So um, the forward trunk lean is interesting because I think it's something that people need to develop proprioception for. So for example, learning your brain has to learn where the weight is in your feet, right? And I, and I think that starts with just standing, static standing at the countertop at home. Like practicing, you know, slightly leaning forward from the ankles and just teaching your brain where the weight is or the pressure is within your feet, right? So we're talking midfoot here. Um, and, then, and then once you master that, you can translate that into running, right? So like in running, um, where you actually want the trunk lane is at mid stance or what we call the downstep of the running gait cycle, where all of the weight is through one leg. And the reason why that's so important is because if you can maintain eight to 10 degrees of a forward trunk lane there, it actually creates a hip hinge where you can have access to utilizing your glutes for the next phase of running, which is push off. How do you develop like the strength in order to be able to do that? Like what are what are what muscles are being activated um, that allow you to have proper forward like trunk alignment? Yeah. So to have proper forward trunk alignment, you need to have good hip and core strength. Right. Anytime you're changing alignment um, or running form, you actually do need to develop those muscles to sustain that position for a long period of time. Part of it is habit and part of it, too, is also strength. I want to talk a little bit more about strength maybe later in our conversation, but I have a few more running form related questions to, to fire off at you. Uh, I guess working our way down, I get a lot of questions about, um, you know, like what, what should I be doing with my arms when I'm running and like how important is doing like upper body strength? Uh, I'm curious what your perspective is on, on proper arm swing and the role that plays uh, in making you an efficient runner. That's a great question. Um, and interesting you bring that up because a startup company called ClickSpeed, spelt with a K, 
actually sent me this um, sling that you can wear during running to retrain your arm swing. Um, I have yet to try it. I'm going to put it into test mode when I come back um, and then hopefully test out in the clinic a little bit more um, in early January. But basically, if you can imagine, it's a strap that you wear around your chest. And then there's um, a, an individual strap for each arm. So it only allows your arms to move a certain direction and it doesn't allow you to crisscross your arms. Um, but arm swing is super important. The misconception that most people have is that running is all lower body. But in reality, your arm swing commands the way that your legs swing. Um, and so, for example, if you crisscross your arms, you will most likely crisscross your legs. If you swing with your arms more out in front of you, you're more likely to overstride. Um, so to answer your question of what is proper arm swing position, ideally, we want it to be about 90 degrees. Um, your hands and your wrists should be relaxed. Um, in terms of the height of where your hands should be, what I tell people is pretend like you're putting a penny in your pocket. So you're brushing the front of your hips. Cool. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that like I've I've played with my own arm swing and I, I found that the most more relaxed I am, the more natural it feels. I think a lot of people hold a lot of tension in their shoulders um, when they try and like overemphasize arm string. And uh, that has definitely backfired for me. It's given me all kinds of back problems. And you know what? The other interesting thing is, too, is if you look at somebody's arm swing and say their trunk rotates excessively, that might not be an arm swing problem. It might be a restriction in their thoracic spine. Like maybe they sit at a desk all day and their mid back is just very, very stiff. Well, that's gonna affect their arm swing as well. And then also if you hold a lot of tension in your shoulders, you're less likely to diaphragmatic breathe or at least get you know full, um, proper, efficient breathing while running. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole like integrated system. Uh which is, which is, yeah, it makes it so complex though. I think one thing that I've learned because I too have been, been chronically injured for a while is that like seldom is the area that is hurt, like the actual issue, you know, like, yes, that, that soft tissue may need to heal, but in order to like avoid repeating that, it's usually something, you know, further up the chain, um, which is like, it's frustrating. It's not fair. I know, which, you know, is the, is also the really cool thing about physical therapy is like, you don't have to be super injured to go to physical therapy. Like you can be healed from your Achilles tendonitis, but when you come in, we might be working on hip and core strength, but you know, I'm going to explain to you why we're working on these other different body parts. Right. Okay. So moving down uh, a few feet, how do I engage my glutes? Cause you hear about that all the time and I've, done so many clamshells and I have so many friends that are like, oh yeah, it's all in the glutes. You got to engage your glutes, but I don't know what that feels like. What are some, I guess, general ways to make sure that you're using some, one of the largest muscles in your body when you're running? Yeah. So that's one of the most common questions that I get as well. Um, and so in order to use your glutes and, you know, some patients come in and they tell me they do three different variations of clamshells and, uh, you know, I think that's a little bit excessive, but there needs to be some way for you to um, transfer the exercises that you do, you know, on the floor at home into running itself. And that's a challenge. So one of the running cues that I like um, is the glute push-off cue. So basically in the downstep or mid-stance phase of running, um, you actively think about squeezing your glutes as you're pushing off the ground. So foot hits the ground, you're gonna tell yourself, okay, I'm gonna squeeze my right glute as hard as I can as I push off the ground. And it's easier to practice doing one side at a time 
Um, and then once you master, for example, doing the right side, then you can start doing the left side. Once you master the left side, then you can alternate right versus left. Gotcha. Okay. I'm going to, after, after we're done recording this, I'm going to listen back to that part. In the clinic, like I'll record people like before, like first thing they come in and then we do the glute push off cue and then I'll re-record them and we'll draw the angles again. And some people can double their hip extension by just retraining the brain to recruit the glute muscles instead of recruiting the hamstrings or the calf muscles. On average, like how long does it take generally for people to uh, retrain their movement patterns? It can be immediate. There are, you know, for example, the glute push-off cue, like if you can get somebody to kind of practice that often, they can master it immediately and they can see almost double the amount of hip extension. You can have somebody increase their cadence um, in the clinic. The only issue is how do they, you know, how long does it take for that to feel natural? You know, instead of them going on a run and being like, okay, I need to run at this particular cadence for the entirety of my run. Um, and that process can take, you know, anywhere from four to eight weeks. Cool. So speaking of cadence, um, what are some general like misunderstandings about cadence and how do you um, go about determining what the proper cadence is for a given runner? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's everyone knows now that, you know, 180 steps per minute is a number that some guy made up, right? Like not everyone has to be at 180 steps. Um, I would say anywhere between 165 and 190 is a pretty normal range. Um, and what's, uh, what's interesting too is for some people, they force themselves to be at 180. And what they find is that they actually can't sustain 180 steps per minute because they just don't have, they, they've never trained their tendons, like their Achilles tendon, um, to be efficient enough to, you know, uh, recoil at that speed and then, you know, be efficient, you know, sustaining 180 steps per minute. Cool. Yeah. And I think like now most wearables will be able to tell you your cadence so you don't have to try and count or do a bunch of math when you're running. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing too is um, there is also footage of some people who have a cadence of over 200 steps per minute. And that's not necessarily a good thing because when you look at those people, um, they have such tight hips uh, and we call that an anterior pelvic tilt. So their hip flexors are really tight. They're low, they're overusing their low back muscles. And instead of having a full leg swing, they almost have half a leg swing. And so they have to take more steps in order to compensate for that. So you might've mentioned it before, and I think I, I might know the answer, but what are kind of the most important muscle groups to kind of think about when you're running? Um, Obviously, it's not your lower back and it's not your hip flexors, or it might be. Um, but I'm curious, like, what is the driver behind uh, proper running form? If you could name like one or two areas. Hips and core. Hips and core? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the core is an interesting one because I feel like there's also so many runners that have, you know, an eight or 10 minute core routine yet they have no idea how to fully engage their core during activity. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't even know what your core actually is and that it encompasses like your pelvic floor and areas like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you have pretty yeah. good baseline knowledge of that. I think probably from a lot of the conversations I've, that you've had. 
Oh man. Well, no, I've also just been injured like for <laughs> for what feels like eons. But no, I I thought a lot about like my pelvic floor and I it's a really interesting area that like I didn't know existed up until a year ago. Yeah, knowledge is power. Yeah. Do you spend much time working on on runners' pelvic floors? Um, I don't. Uh to us well, to a certain degree I do. Like I've taken courses on women's health. Um, but for me, like to be a pelvic floor specialist. That means you're trained to do internal pelvic floor work, which if I feel like that's necessary for a patient, I would just refer them out to a pelvic floor specialist. But if we're working on things like, you know, core strength, I do use cues to help patients engage their pelvic floor as well. Cool. Yeah, I recorded a uh, a podcast uh, with Claire Bernard Miller, where we dove into yeah the details around pelvic floor health uh, for men and women. So highly recommend listeners go back and find that episode. So another area I wanted to ask you about um, has to do with the feet. I worked at San Francisco Running Company for a couple years, and folks would come in all the time and tell me that they were like chronically injured because they um, overpronated or they oversupinated. And I don't think they really understood exactly what that meant. Um, I'm wondering if you can give me an explanation of supination and pronation and why those are actually quite important um, within the running form. Absolutely. And um, I'll give you a good example of this, too, because I, I had a guy come in who's like a perfect example of this. So pronation is a normal part of the running gait cycle. Um, anytime that your foot is accepting load or impact forces, your arch has to collapse. Your ankle is going to roll in a little bit and that's perfectly normal. Like you need to have your arch collapse to fully, um, accepts that impact and the load. And as you push off the ground, um, your arch will lift off of ground and it will supinate. And so that creates a rigid lever for you to properly create enough force to push off the ground. So throughout the running gait cycle, um, you go through phases of pronation and supination. And, you know, throughout the last couple of decades, pronation has had a really bad reputation and it was blamed for a lot of injuries that people get. Um, Too much of one thing obviously isn't great. So people who pronate more often are more likely to have um, overuse tendon injuries of the foot and ankle versus somebody who supinates a lot or has a rigid foot are more likely to have bone stress injuries. So it's, you know, I wouldn't just blame pronation for running related injuries. It could go either way. Um, And what's interesting too, is so many patients who have pronation or have been told that they pronate, they come in with like stability shoes and orthotics that they've been wearing for 10 years because somebody at a running shoe store told them that they pronate and they think they're damaged goods. But in reality, if you look at like the top distance runners, many of them pronate and that's perfectly okay. Um, sometimes pronation comes from, you know, having flatter feet um, or just the way that you're structurally built. And so for me, my job is to respect the way that you're built, acknowledge it, and then teach you how to work around it so that you don't injure yourself. How does that inform your philosophy toward footwear? Um, are you a fan of like shoes with wide toe boxes, uh, high heel to toe drop, stuff like that? Or are you kind of agnostic? I think it depends. And you know what's super interesting is my physical therapy practice, Run Resiliently, is on top of Renegade Running, uh, which is a retail running shoe store. It, it's a the perfect collaboration. But at the same time, 
so many of my patients um, want to ask me how I feel about a particular shoe or like, what is the best plantar fasciitis shoe, right? The answer is always, it depends. Um, so for example, for people who have bunions, they should definitely go with a wider toe box. Um, for people who have Achilles injuries, they might be more comfortable with a shoe with a higher heel to toe drop. Um, it all depends. I think, you know, for somebody who has been running in Nikes or Brooks that have a high heel to toe drop, it's going to be extreme and they're going to have a harder time transitioning to a zero drop shoe. Um, so it depends. I always lay out the information for people and, and try to help them make good decisions. I also think it's valuable to go into a quality running store like Renegade or San Francisco Running Company or your local shop uh, to really try on a bunch of different shoes because I think that is one thing that you don't want to uh, order online if you've never if you've never had your foot in a given model before. It's really helpful to have have an expert. And you know everyone's preferences for running shoes is so variable. Your foot type and foot shape is so variable. Um, it's, it's very hard to make particular recommendations for people. One thing that I think is very interesting is super shoes because, you know, I think, and, and the good thing is that these days there's so many different super shoe options for people. Um, but the main thing that I tell people is, you know, and Nike has researched this themselves. I don't know if they ever published it, but if you were to wear a pair of Nike alpha flies or vapor flies for the very first time in a race, you have a chance of up to 300% muscle breakdown during that one event that you do. And so, and you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, they try to spare the mileage of the shoes so they only break it out on race day. But really you have to train in those shoes and you need to learn how to run in those shoes because it will change your mechanics a little bit different. What did you wear uh, for CIM? I wear the Nike Alpha Fly 2. Did, I mean, I, you PR'd, so they must have done pretty well for you. Yeah, I also do, um, I probably do, you know, my long run workouts in them once a week just to make sure that, um, you know, I'm comfortable running in those shoes. What type of shoe do you look for uh, on your other days when you're just doing kind of, you know, uh, your daily mileage? I rotate between the Nike Invincibles and the Nike Vomeros. And it is important to rotate shoes, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the human body craves variety. And so I think everyone's goal is to be able to wear any kind of shoe and not be terrified that you're going to injure yourself, right? Like that should be the ultimate goal. Right. You shouldn't fear your shoes. Exactly. And never blame the shoes for an injury either. Like most likely you already had a weak spot to start with. I'm definitely guilty of that. I'm guilty uh, of that too. Usually, <laughs> exactly. Usually in my own training errors. Yeah. All right. So I want to transition uh, this conversation into um, some basics around strength training for runners. Um, but first, I thought we could just say, like, answer the question why strength training is important. Um, strength training is important because you are training your muscles in different planes of motions, right? And this is going to be specific to runners. Runners, triathletes, swimmers is our musculoskeletal system develops in the one movement that we do over and over again. So, but these muscles are designed to move, you know, in rotational positions, frontal plane positions. And so strength training for one part allows you to train those muscles in the different planes of motions that they were designed to do. Um, second, it helps increase speed, right? Everybody wants to get faster. 
And there are more ways to get faster than just running, right? And and that's where strength training comes in. And, and that's one of the most researched topics is strength work. And it's proven to make people run faster. And the other way that it makes people run faster is because you become, become a more durable athlete. Like you can physically handle higher volumes of training load without um, worrying about injuring yourself or the fatigue afterwards. Yeah, I think if you love running as much as you say you do, you should be doing strength work. Right, and I don't think any runner out there would argue with you that strength work is a bad thing. I think it's it's well received that it's beneficial at this point. Um, like you said earlier, I think the most intimidating thing is not knowing where to start. Right. So let's say I have absolutely no experience um, with weightlifting or any kind of strength work, especially strength work that's geared towards running. Um, I come in and see you. Where where do I start? You know, sometimes we start with physical therapy exercises. Um, to be quite Fair. honest, um, mainly because physical therapy exercises helps you find those muscle groups, right? Like if you have no idea how to find your glutes, maybe that's where we start. Or if you have no idea how to hinge from the hips, um, that's where we start. So teaching people how to move properly, how to engage um, the proper muscle groups, that's that's usually a good starting point. Um, and then after that, we would do more basic functional movements, squats, deadlifts, um, lunges, side lunges, planks, um, nothing super complicated. Like I don't think a strength program needs to be that complicated. I think early on, the simpler it is, the better. So are you just trying to make sure that folks have like proper range of movement before you start trying to make them stronger? Absolutely. Um, because if they don't have proper movement and you start by increasing the load, um, they have higher risk of injury. And I think that's one thing that, you know, runners fear about as well is injuring themselves outside of running. Right. So what are some like basic or I guess the main muscle groups you might focus on um, when you're starting with someone that, yeah, is new to strength training? Yeah. So um, core exercises, that's a big one. Um, yep. Glutes, quads, hamstrings, soleus. I would actually argue that the soleus is way more important than the gastroc for distance runners. Um, and if some people are not familiar with what that is, um, your calf muscles uh, are composed of your soleus, which is a deep calf muscle, and your gastroc. Um, and both of those attach to the Achilles tendon. The soleus, nine out of 10 calf strain injuries happen in the soleus. It's an endurance muscle. It has mostly slow twitch muscle fibers. And in the running gait cycle, it's the one that gets loaded the most. What's nice about all of these exercises that um, you've kind of described is that they don't feel very like gear intensive. Like you don't need to be throwing around hundreds of pounds of weights. So it's stuff that you can do, um, if not at a gym, then maybe like at your home, right? Exactly. And um, most of my strength and conditioning clients, um, they have a good amount of equipment at home. So usually that's dumbbells, um, a variety of kettlebells, a stability ball, a yoga mat, and a couple of bands. And they can do a lot of exercises with that. Um, you know, early on, we keep things simple, you know, three sets of 10, just general strength and conditioning, lay down the foundation, focus on form and technique. And then once they master that, we start diving into more strength training, which um, by definition means being able to really recruit fast twitch muscle fibers 
using heavy loads. So that's going to look more like, you know, four to five sets of six to eight reps at a pretty heavy load. And in terms of frequency, how often are you seeing uh, clients that are trying to get a whole lot stronger? I see them about once a month. Um, once a month? Yeah, usually. So they'll. So if they start out as physical therapy and they, or they're working through an injury, I might see them a little bit more frequently. Um, and then I write them a virtual strength and conditioning program. So every day they log into their app, they see the routine that they're supposed to do. It has videos. Um, and then they'll do that on their own. They might come in next month and they'll usually have a list of exercises that they want to go over already. And so we'll just work through that in person. Sometimes they'll send me videos of themselves doing the exercises at the gym and I can provide them feedback that way. And are they doing that routine once a week, five times a week? I think it depends on the athlete. I think for most people, twice a week is more than enough for them to, you know, balance that with running and work. For somebody who is more on the elite professional level, they might be doing strength three times a week. That's like, that's a lot on top of running. I'm sure like a high volume as well. Exactly. But you know, I honestly, like I think for the average runner two times a week, it doesn't even need to be long, 30 minutes. Um, And also just make sure that you're doing exercises for the upper body as well. And not just the legs. I forgot to mention that earlier, like things like pull-ups, push-ups, bent over rows, posture exercises. Those are all important as well. Right. It goes back to uh, the importance of of having arms that can swing efficiently. Okay. So I wanted to return to um, something you said about folks that have kind of like a gym set up at home. Um, If I came to you and was like, all right, I don't want to go to a gym because my closest gym is, you know, an hour away. What are like three to four pieces of gear um, that I can purchase that are affordable and, you know, will fit in my house uh, that will allow me to do strength work at home? Where would I start? I would start with dumbbells, kettlebells, resistance bands, and a stability ball. And when I talk about resistance bands, I don't mean like the super stretchy therabands that they give you in PT clinics. I'm talking like real resistance bands, pull-up assist bands, like they're heavy, right? Like you can do a lot with those, a lot of exercises with those. I'm personally a huge fan of kettlebells just because I find that like when I'm working out with them, they're like more interactive. So I'm like just more engaged because I'm swinging around this huge weight. Yeah, it's a, it's a different form of exercise, but I, I love those two kettlebell deadlifts. That's a great exercise. Um, and, you know, I always, even if patients go to the gym, I always recommend them to have the essentials at home. Um, because sometimes you're going to find it's just more efficient for you to do your strength exercises right after a run um, when all the equipment is right there versus going to the gym is just another step. Right. Yeah. What I've fallen in the habit of is keeping like a kettlebell um, in between my kitchen and my living room. And like every time I pass through the doorway, I'll like stop and do a, a few swings. And I don't know, maybe it's foolish, but I think it it, it's, it adds up over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think a lot of folks listening to this might be trail runners and some might be road runners. How does your approach towards strength differ based on whether or not someone is logging the majority of their miles on pavement versus dirt? That's a really great question. And, you know, I think 
trail runners and road runners are more similar than we think they are. Yes, like the environment is very different. Um, but in terms of strength training, at the end of the day, it's it's still running. Um, and, you know, I would say for trail runners, I focus more on the eccentric movements compared to road runners, um, mainly because with trail running, typically there's a lot of downhill going on. Um, so for example, with a basic movement like squats, we might focus on, you know, coming down into the squat for a count of five, holding at the bottom, and then faster on the way up. So there's ways that you can play around with the tempo of the squat. Versus for a road runner, it might not matter as much. So that's a big difference. Cool. Both groups still need to do plyometric work. Both groups need to do anti-rotation exercises and lateral movements. One thing that I, I didn't ask you previously was when did you kind of get over the uh, like chronic injury pattern? Uh, when did like personally? I got over the chronic injury patterns um, post collegiately, and there were several different factors. Um, one was I was not competing as much anymore, so I just had time to listen to my body. Um, and even though I was jumping into races here and there, if something didn't feel right, I would just take a day or two off. And it would turn into a huge problem. It's harder to do that when, you know, you're competing post-collegiately and there's a lot of pressures and you're worried about losing your, you know, your spot on the racing team. Um, and then second to that, I started physical therapy school. So I had a lot more knowledge um, through that of just, you know, how do I put a diagnosis to what I was feeling? And that helped a lot to be able to self-diagnose. I know I always tell patients don't do that. But I definitely do that all the time. You know, third is strength training. Um, I got really into strength training when I moved out to Boulder, Colorado. I think given that you're a doctor, you're allowed to self-diagnose. Yes, but you know what? Sometimes it's a gift and a curse because, and, you know, I was injured in August with a posterior tibial tendon injury. So, you know, I knew exactly what it was, but the problem was I knew so many different exercises that I could possibly do to it that I just... I overdid my exercises and I overtreated myself. Yeah, it's like decision fatigue. It's like there's so much I could be doing. I don't know what to do. Yeah, so I'll just do all of them. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I thought we could move into talking about uh, maybe some of your favorite like recovery techniques and tools. Oh, that's a great question. Um, there are so many different gadgets out there these days, as you know. Um, I know. Ugh. Yeah, it's it's almost overwhelming. I, yeah, I have like 12 different massage guns that like all kind of do the same thing in different ways, but I never know I never know how to use them properly. I kind of just go to town on myself and uh <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'm following the right protocols there. Uh massage guns are or vibration therapy is best used pre-run. Oh yeah. No, see, I use <laughs> I use it exclusively at the end of my runs. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to hurt yourself doing that, but it's it's best to use pre-run and it should be a supplement to your mobility program. It does not replace foam rolling. And you know, I'm kind of the same as you like I actually have eight different foam rollers mostly because people keep gifting me more rehab gadgets for birthdays and Christmas. And honestly, like, you know, my favorite foam roller is still the basic black foam roller that's $20 on Amazon. <laughs> like, I think that one's still the best. The vibrating ones kind of run away from you. Um, but in terms of, you know, the best gadgets, um, I would say there's a couple of essentials. The first one that I'll say is sleep. 
like if you don't get a substantial amount of sleep, you know, to recover in between your training sessions, like it doesn't matter how much you spend on gadgets. Um, you know, the best form of recovery is going to be sleep. Um, second, you should have a foam roller, a basic foam roller. Um, you should have a lacrosse ball. That's also super affordable. You should have a five inch ball. Um, I call that, well, the one that I use is called the orb $20 great purchase. Um, and the bigger five inch ball just allows you to get into, you know, the hamstrings and the quads a little bit more deeper and intentional compared to the foam roller. Um, I think having a massage gun is also super nice. Like you'll never regret buying a massage gun. And, um, the other gadget that I love is the roll recovery R8. Yeah. Those things look like torture devices, but they, man, they're so good. Yeah. Those are, I mean, I have, a, I have so many different rehab products, but those are probably my, my favorite go-tos. Yeah. And I think my argument for getting a massage gun is like, if you have a foam roller, but you just like look at it and don't actually use it, like it's not going to do you any good. But if you're more likely to use a, a massage gun, then like spring for it. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm in agreement with you as well. Like increase your chances of compliance and success. Totally. And in terms of, I don't know, supplement, diet, stuff like that, um, do you have any kind of like tips that you subscribe to? Um, now, I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm not going to give nutrition advice. But right. uh, one of my favorite products that I've been using a lot for this training season is the Momentous Recovery Protein. I, I feel substantially better after taking that after like a long run or, you know, a long tempo session. Momentous makes some amazing stuff. They do. I've also tried their collagen, their omega-3s, their turmeric. It's it's good quality. Yeah, I guess uh, to answer my own question. Yeah, I've like I've been on this uh, Huberman podcast kick as of late. And I'm like, yeah, a total acolyte of that guy now. So I've been taking like fish oil and yeah, collagen, whey protein, creatine, stuff like that. Trying to get some uh, deliberate cold exposure. Um, cause I, I do think that like, that does wonders not for, not only for like recovery, but like mental health. Um, the older I get, the more I'm like, I need to start investing more time in that kind of stuff. Exactly. I mean, it's not going to hurt you. Um, so it, it is worth investigating. Totally. Well, I think this was a great, uh, great second attempt at, 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 uh, our conversation and I'm excited to have you back on to maybe go over in more detail, some practical uh, strength and recovery protocols uh, in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. Of course. Thanks. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Ayn for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>